Why work to advance liberalism? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Emily Chamley Wright. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Emily Chamley Wright. Emily is the president and CEO of the Institute for Humane Studies, which supports and connects scholars deeply interested in the ideas that underlie a free, tolerant, and pluralistic society. Her scholarly work explores the intersection of economics and culture, and she writes frequently about liberalism, civil discourse, and higher education. She also has six books to her credit, including Liberal Learning and the Art of Self-Governance and The Cultural and Political Economy of Recovery. She also naturally, of course, writes essays and has them published by various outlets, some of which will actually form the basis of most of our discussion today. Emily, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you, Alex. It is just such a delight to be here. I'm a big fan of the show and a big fan of yours, too. You uh, have an artful way of converse, uh, conversing with folks uh, around big ideas, but make it accessible. And and uh, that's a real art form. So I appreciate being with you today. Oh, well, thank, thank you so much for the kind words. It's very nice to hear. Great feedback. And, and again, thank you so much for being on here. I think we're going to have a great chat today. So without further ado, then let's just jump right in. As you know, Emily, because you said you're a fan, we do base each of our episodes around sort of a theme and question, and then we go over the answers and conversation takes us. So our question today is, why work to advance liberalism? And what we're going to do, I think, is explore this question by pulling on some key threads in some of your essays. And I think a good place to start before jumping into why we should advance something is understanding what we're advancing, more specifically your idea on exactly what we're advancing. And one thing I really liked in one of your essays is that you touch on the four corners of liberalism. So I'd actually like to take the opportunity for us to sort of address that and sort of explore that in your own words here today. Of course, we will always post links to essays so our listeners know in our episode notes and so on and so forth. There's no way we're going to have Emily recite everything in her articles here for us today, but, but we will provide at least a high-level tour. So you do identify the four corners of liberalism as political liberalism, economic liberalism, epistemic liberalism, and cultural liberalism. So I'd like to tour those, and then we'll do some follow-up. So let's just start with political liberalism. What is that? What do you mean by this corner of liberalism? Yeah, and I will get there, Alex, uh, very quickly. But but I, I would say step back even one step further sure, and say that because one one of the ways to really wrap your arms around liberalism is to point to what it does, right? Mm. You know, so, so what are the fruits of liberalism? And, you know, the way I look at it is, is, you know, it is liberalism is that set of principles that underlie the good society. It's uh, when I say good society, I'm talking about like a, a tolerant pluralistic society in which individuals and communities flourish and they're flourishing in a context of peace and widely, spare, widely shared prosperity and mutual respect. And so there's a lot in there, right? Um, and so, and every single one of those things is, is um, you know, uh, should be open to challenge. And and uh, and I'm and I'm excited to to entertain that challenge. But I just kind of want to lay out uh, for folks before we start diving into the structural elements of liberalism to say like. It's, this is sort of like the why question, you know, why, why do we care? And, and it's because liberalism is the foundation of that, that version of the good society. And that's, uh, so that's the, 
the step back I wanted to take. Um, but happy then to talk through our four corners here. And political liberalism, you know, the way I see it is, um, it, it, you know, I think in places like Canada, the United States, political liberalism is probably the most familiar because it's so embedded within civic education. Um, it's the it's uh, in the American context. It's the um, the founding documents of the Declaration of Independence. It's the Bill of Rights. It's those kinds of um, touchstone documents, ideas, and principles. Which is um, that there is a, an a, a an abundance of respect for the individual and individual autonomy and. And not just respect for them as in like, we shall not tread, but also um, an underlying belief in the dignity of individuals. And because of that dignity um, that uh, of individuals that we default there, we start there, that every, every human being is inherently endowed with dignity, then that means that we've got to give them um, a broad scope of autonomy and freedom um, and then the rules of the game, so like um, uh, uh, equality before the law, is a is a is a core idea within political liberalism. And the idea there is that everybody is afforded equality before the law. No one is above the law or below the law. That idea is a fundamentally liberal, politically liberal concept. Um, because it's rooted within that that core respect for the individual. Mm-hmm. And, and and I suppose as, as you were sort of saying there, not only is it just the idea that these things must be recognized, like the dignity and the autonomy of the individual and so on, but that political institutions must also follow through and interact with the individuals in, in a way that respects that as well. Hence the precisely, the precisely. So you start with these principles and then you build up to um, liberal institutions um, that would be like those captured within um, the Bill of Rights, for example, that that government is there to secure your rights, but um, uh, but you have a broad uh, swath of autonomy um, that that the government is there to protect uh, those liberties. It's not there to give you your liberties. It's not there to um, abridge those liberties. And so the institutions of the liberal of liberal government, is um, is oriented towards um, ensuring that um, that that concept of individual liberty is is robust. Mm-hmm. And we will return, of course, to elements of political liberalism, tensions with it, the attacks it might be under, and so on and so forth later on in our conversation. But for now, I am going to push us forward in our tour of these these four pillars and corners of liberalism. So that was political liberalism. Now, economic liberalism. How how you see that? Sure, sure. So um, you know. We move then from the very familiar to the less familiar, I think, within popular culture, civic culture, that um, that sometimes sort of like economic uh, policy is sort of oftentimes kind of pushed to the side as being less important in a, in a liberal democratic societies. And but a true liberal um, uh, perspective includes both that those political freedoms, but also economic freedoms. Um, it's, it means a broad, a, a wide berth for. Um, a market society to to flourish. It's it's that it's the basics of um, so long as you and I are not abridging the rights of others that we can um, explore voluntary ways to um, make one another better off. And in in pursuit of that kind of activity, 
um, we call it market activity, we call it market coordination, um, that that so long as all of our interactions are voluntary, uh, that that we can expect mutual benefit to flow from that. And in fact, you know, over the, you know, uh, 250 or so, 300 years of uh, of liberalism, depending on where you start the uh, the the, uh, the marker, you know, we've had this massive, massive enrichment because of that economic freedom uh, that that has been launched by the by institutional rules of the game that allow for that kind of openness, economic openness. So, you know, Deirdre McCloskey, the economic historian Deirdre McCloskey puts it at uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of the 3,000% increase in human material well-being over the course of this time period, precisely because we had that kind of economic openness. Mm-hmm. And as we as we leave political liberalism and economic liberalism in our, in our tour of these pillars, I, I like that the next two are grouped together, epistemic liberalism and cultural liberalism, because as, as we'll probably see later on in the conversation, this, this is where we might lose some people that probably would ultimately not, not consider themselves allies of liberalism, but we will leave that aside for now. But just again, at a high level, epistemic liberalism, that this one's quite interesting. So, so how, how do you view that as a corner of liberalism? Yeah. So, so, and we can even simplify it and call it like intellectual liberalism. Mm. It's this, it's this idea that, um, I'm just going to keep it very simple. Good things happen when we are open to having our mind change. Good things happen when we are open to, uh, when we enter into a, uh, discovery process with a sense of humility that, that our um, prior beliefs and understanding of the world might be completely flipped upside down, might be overturned because we encountered new evidence or a better argument. And it's not just that we reluctantly, um, uh, you know, allow our ideas to be scrutinized by others. The true intellectual liberalism that's where their joy is, is to is to be engaged in that sort of process where their own best ideas are scrutinized by others in a spirit of good faith um, and honesty and openness, uh, where we can get further forward in our intellectual progress um, because we have that genuine openness, that sort of knowledge-seeking curiosity, that knowledge-seeking humility that says, Oh, I think I've got this figured out, and now I want someone to try and tell me, you know, what I've got wrong about it. That um, that is really a legacy. And if you think of of um, the modern university when they're at their best, they're a legacy of Enlightenment era liberalism. When you when you consider the age of the Enlightenment, what that was that was about was saying, look, there are you know, their ideas should not be taboo. Um, you know, we even if our ideas are uh, challenging accepted wisdom, especially if they're challenging accepted wisdom, even if they're running afoul of other authorities like the state or the church, that we our attitude, a liberal attitude is one of intellectual openness. And and I like there that you, uh, in your writings and just there as well, that you emphasize that this is not indeed, like you said, just a tolerance, like a reluctant sort of acceptance of, oh, you know, people are going to counter ideas and have debates and open inquiry in society. The idea is that this has to be welcome. So like, you know, a la John Stuart Mill, he talks about, you know, whether you like it or not, this stuff is needed to advance society. Yeah. So I, I really like that point, too, because a lot of folks might sort of fall into that trap of thinking, well, you know, okay, we'll, we'll reluctantly accept this type of criticism or mm-hmm. or uh, or debate, but, but in reality, yeah. it's needed. So I really do appreciate that point. 
And we could go to cultural liberalism real quick, because I do think you're right. They are related that it is related to intellectual liberalism. And you use the word toleration and tolerance. There's a high degree of um, tolerance for dissenting views if you're an intellectual liberal. Right. Um, But but if you're a cultural liberal, there's also a high degree of toleration for uh, um, different views of how to live the good life. So long as we're not abridging the rights of others, you and I can. Um, you know, uh, worship different deities. We can um, uh, practice our civic uh, engagement in very different ways. Um, I could, I could decide to not worship a god at all, um, and and we're still okay with with being in each other's midst. And in fact, we welcome the. And again, it's sort of like a. It's not just a, a an arm's length kind of holding one's nose version of toleration. I think that it can start there sometimes. It's like, mm-hmm. I'm just barely tolerant of you. Um, but it turns out that more often than not, when, that when we at least start by toleration and tolerating um, different ways of being in the world, uh, we find out, sometimes it takes generations to find it out, that we can actually live harmoniously together in peace and more than just barely tolerate one another, we can learn how to actually um, really love the fact that that we're in the midst of people different from ourselves. And so that's that that is the um, that sort of spirit of uh, you know a, a contemporary city that has this sort of clashing um, cultures and and language communities. And at the same time, we can all be you know, part of the same civic space um, and 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 be on equal footing in terms of our status in society. Mm-hmm. That's that's a culturally liberal set of norms. Mm-hmm. A term you used in one of your essays is sort of like, like the goal would be like a, a healthy pluralism. I really like that idea. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, you do note that, of course, because they are the four corners and four pillars, that indeed all of these pillars, and as we just explored through conversation as well, do complement each other in obvious ways. So I don't really want to dwell on that because I think we did a nice job touring that together. But but you have also said in one of your essays that, but indeed, granted, the liberal must grant that sometimes these corners can be in, in tension with one another, you know, without getting into specifics uh, just yet. Like even at a high level, what do you mean? Like how can these corners be in tension with each other? Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I think an example might be helpful just to kind of see what we mean here. So like um, uh, freedom of speech, for example, is um, a part of political liberalism. Um, and and even things that are speech that is hateful are protected speech in the United States. And so um and, and so that is part of the political political liberalism tradition. Um, I think of that as being in tension with a culturally liberal orientation that says, hey, let's treat everybody with dignity. Um, that means that we don't that um, while it is not and um, uh, we can't avoid offending people at, you know, at every turn that that would not be a good goal. At the same time, our goal should not be to offend people, right? Mm. That's not, you know, that's not the goal. Uh, and, uh, and, and a respect and respect for civility and civil disagreement. And, um, that's cultural liberalism that's embedded within a culturally liberal environment. Um, but it's intention with freedom of speech. And so to me, tensions are not 
bugs. They're features, not bugs, right? And so if we think of like the tensions in a suspension bridge, there, you know, that a suspension bridge works in part because there's mutually reinforcing um, uh, ways in which each of the elements uh, it supports the strength of the other. But it also works because it's in because there is literally tension. And I think that there is a, a an aspect of these tensions across the four corners that act as a kind of check um, on the others. Right. Um, so. Um, uh, political liberalism, you know, is uh, in a, in its democratic form has an orientation towards, uh, you, know, you know, in a liberal democratic society, for example, there is an in, there is a an inherent drive towards majoritarianism, right? That's an in, that's like an inner pull within the system. Well, you need a check on that, right? And so you need a check that says, but what about the integrity of um, ideas uh, or the intellectual space? That's going to tug and pull against that majoritarian impulse, and 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 you could point to any other corner across across the the way that tugs and pulls at that um, at that in a counteroposing way to that tugging and pulling towards a majority um, uh, perspective. And, and of course, the liberal institutions of um, protection from minority rights, for example, is another way in which it's a governing principle that doesn't allow that majoritarian impulse to run amok um, and to and to go over into illiberalism. So that's what I mean by it being a coherent um, system, that there is tugging and pulling that allows for it to cohere and and, and sustain. Mm -hmm. I actually really like that image because, and, and the way you said it's like a feature, not a bug, because some critics of liberalism just, just mere sort of straight up traditional liberalism say that, well, these are ultimately paradoxes that will end up, you know, causing the collapse of liberalism, sort of as if the idea that liberals don't understand these tensions exist and that, you know, hey, ultimately you know, we found the fatal flaw in the system, so, so to speak. So it's very nice to hear you sort of position that as like, no, you know, the liberals should be aware of these tensions. But as a matter of fact, that's sort of, I guess you view it as sort of that's that's the balance that's struck as liberalism moves forward into the future, I suppose. If, if I don't want to put words yeah. in your mouth, but. Yeah, no, yeah. And I think that there's there's um, always can be a confusion when we use language like balance um, or sort of middle way or mm. something like that. It can sound, make us sound like we're unprincipled mushy middle right. types. And, and, that, and that's, you know, that is exactly not what I mean. The, the principles are that, that are in play um, are not just about, this is one of the reasons why I talk about the good society being a context where individuals and communities thrive, because it's, even though there is a starting point of fundamental respect for the autonomy and dignity of individuals, it's that rule of the game or that principle that actually is the source of well-functioning societies, well-functioning communities within broader societies. So to the focus on individualism is not in opposition to healthy communities. And I think that there's something there and what you just said that allows us to say, you know, look, this is not just a, a sort of delicate political balancing act of left versus right. That's not what liberal the liberal project is about. It's about making sure that we are um, identifying the principles that help to support a high functioning society, 
not, you know, yes, it's a society in which individuals flourish, but it's also a high functioning society, right? Meaning that that there's a lot of widespread cooperation and so and creation of social value that wouldn't be possible if we were all just a bunch of autonomous individuals that, you know, purely in a pure sense respected one another's rights, but never enacted in our, in our, encountered one another in a social context, that would be a really poor society. I mean that literally. It would be a, it would be a devastatingly poor right. society. We probably wouldn't exist because mm-hmm. we would be, you know, um, completely vulnerable to the forces of nature. Right. And, no, no interaction, and no exchange, no cooperation. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. exactly. And so we would be impoverished in all senses of the word impoverished. And so when we think about the liberal project and liberal principles, it is founded on an understanding of individual rights, but it doesn't mean that it's turning its back on a high functioning society. And that gets at some of what you were just opening up here for critiques of liberalism. It's like, oh, it's individualism run amok. Um, if we really cared about society, we in communities, we do something very different. Um, I, I think that we need to, to challenge that notion um, because it misunderstands the function uh, that individual liberty plays within a high functioning society. Right. And that's why I actually, in that way, then, especially as you elaborate on that, I really do come to appreciate your sort of idea as a sort of the, the tensioners holding up sort of a very solid bridge that people can actually use. And like, that's kind of a nice image, as you said, because the, the tensions don't create sort of a wavy bridge that collapses in the wind or like, you know, some sort of thing that has no structural integrity. The idea is that these tensions, as you were saying, it's not necessarily a balancing act, but it just holds everything together in a certain way. So I, 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 I do really appreciate that. And um, I love that. That's great. I'm, 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 going to steal that that's excellent great awesome happy to develop that with you um and and actually on on the sort of i actually i'm glad we sort of went down that path because on the sort of note about like you know as you said the the critics sort of say oh it's this mushy middle type project etc etc um sort of i guess another thing that some people throw at liberalism sort of as a demonstr as a way in their minds to demonstrate sort of quote unquote the, the liberal hypocrisy or the fact it is sort of not as open as it thinks it is um, is people sort of introduce the idea that there are indeed limits to liberalism. You know, for example, as people advance liberal ideas and say, like, you know, we're, we're open to different ideas, you know, it's about intellectual inquiry and so on and so forth and all the things we discussed, you know, some people say, well, well aha, like, I, you know, I found something that doesn't work for the liberal pr- project, for example, fascism. You aren't open to that idea type of thing. So I, I kind of want to hear your thoughts on um, if liberals indeed should not overstate the case that there's no limits to liberalism, for instance, and then that we should be a little more sturdy. But no, there are limits this far nor further, or, or should we not be? So I, I kind of want to hear your ideas on the, on the sort of limits of liberalism indeed, because again, some critics, mm-hmm. in my mind, I think it's cheap, but I want to hear your thoughts. They sort of try to get a, get liberals with the, well, well, aha, I found some sort of ideology or thing that doesn't fit with liberalism. Ergo, it's not such an open system sort of thing. Yeah. So, so um, does that mean you're equally open to um, having open dialogue with the white nationalist who, you know, is, and, and so, yeah, so, so I, I, I do think that there is a, a straw man version of that. Um, and, um, and so as, as free people, one of the things we can say is, you know, life's short <laughs> and, and, um, and I've only got so many hours on the planet and, and there will be some ideas that I just don't want to take seriously because, uh, they're, um, 
there's far more important things to do. So I feel completely um, uh, vindic- or, you know, justified mm. in ignoring, um, you know, say, you know, a, a Holocaust denier or ignoring um, someone who wants to advi- advance sort of white nationalist views. You know, I'm, I'm like, like, I, I, I'm not interested right. in that. Or, so, you know, so like on, on the face of it, it seems illiberal as a tactical yeah. choice. I'm not engaging with this. There's other things to do. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I, I'm, I feel completely justified in that. That said, the discursive space should be open, right? In other words, there we should not say, oh, those ideas are bankrupt or it's a settled question. Um, so we should disallow people from engaging that conversation. Um, that is a mistake. Uh, and and so I, while I don't want to spend my time, you know, uh, arguing with the Holocaust denier, um, other people, very serious minds will and um, and and uh, will do so not because they're excited about giving this person a platform, but because uh, they're they, they've got another uh, another they want to understand, for example, where do these people where are these people coming from? What are their? Why are they motivated in this way? What makes them tick? And so in Holocaust studies, um, one of the things that people study are Holocaust deniers, and they put some of those folks on their syllabus. Um, You know, we would never want to outlaw that or make, you know, pass some sort of institutional rule against that. Um, So when I, so, so both things can be true. We can decide to dismiss points of view as being not worthy of consideration and also defend the rights of those who are saying, I actually do think it's worth us tangling with these folks and here's why. And, and I'm going to, and this is what I'm, this is how I'm going to do it. Um, That openness or contestability is one of the most important liberal principles of, um, of open inquiry. It's one of the most, it's one of the reasons why, institutions of higher education are a legacy of liberalism is that is that openness and willingness to um, offer that out. It doesn't mean that someone who's kind of a crackpot has a right to a hearing within a serious institution of higher learning. But if someone in that institution wants to engage them, they have that right. Right. And ever so thematic as part of our discussion, there are tensions between those two. Uh, we mm-hmm. can make tactical decisions. And as you said, people can obviously choose how to spend their time and other people don't have a right to a certain space or to shove themselves into other people's spaces. But of course, as you said, it should certainly not be sort of, you know, we should not go about denying people the opportunity to engage with certain ideas. Because I, I guess it also goes to say, too, that like, you know, just because someone engages with a certain idea doesn't mean that the person who's trying to engage with it is automatically saying there's some, you know, on the face of a credibility to these ideas, perhaps they just want to learn how to argue against it better for, for example. So, yeah. And, and I think that there was a time not so long ago that we wouldn't have needed to say that, but I think we need to say that now. Fair enough. And moving, moving ahead then, because I think we've provided a really good sort of sprint of context setting. We explored the four corners and so on and so forth and added a little bit of color commentary, talked about some criti- critics and what they might say about liberalism and talked about liberalism's limits. When we package this all up into sort of what sort of flavor of all this, you know, we're advocating for it in your mind, at least as far as advancing liberalism. And here's a term I like the way you round all this up. You, you're saying all of this is ultimately to say that we should be advocating not a public philosophy, not a religion, 
but ultimately a certain sensibility. And I kind of wanted you to spend a bit of time on that and why you think that's very important to make those distinctions. Because as I read the essay, I, I really bought into what you were saying there, but of course our listeners might not have read. So I want you to actually spend some time why you thought that was an interesting place to stop and make that distinction between, again, I'll say it, for example, public philosophy or civil religion. You think that liberalism should be thought of more as a sensibility. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and I uh, he probably stole it from someplace else, but I'll steal it from George Will in when he wrote um, The Conservative Sensibility. He said, you know, what do I mean by that? Like, And he's like, it's it's more than an attitude, but not quite an agenda. And I love that because it's not just a flaky, oh, I'm going to point to a bunch of stuff that I like and then put a put a bow around it. You know, so it's more systemic than just a bundle of of attitudes. Uh, But it's not the same thing as, and therefore I know I've got the formula for where all of our conclusions, whether it's philosophical conclusions, policy conclusions, should land, right? And, you know, that's what he's, he's backing off on saying, no, this, this isn't, you know, having, having a sensibility is, has got some systemic elements to it that certain things cohere and go together. Um, But they, um, uh, but it doesn't mean that all the answers are packed into that, into those starting points. And so, um, so what do I mean by a liberal sensibility? So a liberal sensibility is one that default, it's it's like a set of um, defaults, uh, starting points. It's a set of um, default postures of how we encounter the world. So I don't think I have the exhaustive list, but I think some, some key ones are, are these. It's a default towards openness. So um, when we're faced with a challenge or faced with something that makes us uncomfortable, like so it might be a new immigrant community, for example, um, that discomfort might be there, but a liberal sensibility defaults to say, hey, look, let's keep an open mind. Um, you know, these folks are different from folks that we've we've uh, encountered before. And you know what? Um, let's let's default towards openness and, and see where it goes, right? And that's that cultural toleration. But it's also a default towards openness on a whole range of things. Uh, openness um, with respect to, um, uh, you know, political openness. So like the relationship between a free press and politics is one of openness that says that, look, uh, you know, any any of our uh, political leaders may not like the criticism that they receive in a um, uh, free press, but their default, if they're part of a liberal democratic um, uh, society, is one of openness that says, I didn't like the bad press, but I, but I respect the fact that the press has a job to do. And, um, and, I, and I respect also the openness of um, counter, a counter argument if um, there's another side of the story that needs to be told. That sort of default towards openness. We've talked about openness in the intellectual space as well. Openness with respect to, um, look, Alex and Emily um, have an idea for how they can um, combine their resources and and may have some appeal to a buying public. Um, you know, unless there's reason to to shut, you know, like really good reason to shut them down, we should have a default towards openness to letting them try. So that's what I mean by a default mm-hmm. towards openness. Um, and just to name like two others real quick is, 
is I think that a liberal sensibility also is one that has a sort of default towards optimism in the face of change and a default towards what I would call a healthy skepticism uh, when power is involved. And that skepticism of power can be skepticism of state power, can be skepticism of cultural power Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. as well. And and that doesn't mean a blithe and sweeping cynicism necessarily, but a healthy informed skepticism is, is a sort of nice liberal default um, that helps to keep us in check when we want to find a solution. And the easiest one to grab is a top-down, heavy-handed authoritarian solution. Our liberal sensibility should kick in and say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I get why you want to solve this problem, but let's really interrogate very, very closely before we go with an authoritarian solution. Right. And and I like actually the way you, you keyed in on sort of like the idea of, um you know, when it comes to change and looking into the future, like, you know, you know, whether it's like a timeline sort of change or whether it's just like a cultural change around you, the sort of defaulting to openness and, and optimism. Ultimately, I thought that was a very interesting thing because that would sharply distinguish the the liberal thinker, if you will, to use the term from someone who might have more of a, a reactionary approach to any kind of change that would happen. I think that's actually one of the probably like a key seed of, of, of you know, where we would split the difference between someone who someone who might even like their political liberalism and economic liberalism, but if they approach every cultural shift or every sort of, um, you know, intellectual shift as sort of like something they need to react to or have a reactionary sort of sensibility towards, I guess that you would say that's probably also a split in the road there too. If they sort of lose that cultural and intellectual side of liberalism, if, if they're very resistant to change and just want things to stay the way they are, for example. Yeah, and you can also imagine the other, someone coming sort of like uh, having a strong affinity with cultural liberalism and really kind of rejecting economic liberalism. Right. um, Right. Too, as a default response when there's, you know, economic disruption, for example. And like the economist in me wants to, um, you know, and, and, and for many, many, Decade, for, you know, a couple of decades, I actually, you know, thought this way, which is that if only they would understand economics better, all, everything would be okay, right? Um, but um, and and in fact, sometimes it does help to understand a little econ, you know, to mm-hmm. kind of have that sort of default towards openness. Um, but also, I, I, you know, I also respect the fact that there is a um, that that a craving for stability, a craving for certainty is a very real human response. And, um, and, and if you don't have experience in the world that allows you to see that actually there are processes that, that in the wake of disruption that tend under the right circumstances, you do get course correction or you do get something even better than we had before. Um, uh, absent that experience, it can be super hard to see. And so I, I, I think that it's a, it's a bigger challenge than just learning sort of some basic economic principles. I think that it's, it's, um, it's a kind of constant, uh, gardening project, uh, Mm. where you're constantly sort of weeding the garden, um, and, and, and cultivating a, 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 that part of the sensibility. Right. That makes total sense. And actually at that, it's definitely about time where we should take a quick break. So we're going to do some right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Emily Chamley Wright today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. 
As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Elizabeth Aragona, Vincent Geloso, and Peter Jaworski. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Emily Chamley Wright today. So, Emily, I think the first half of our conversation was great, and we, we covered a lot, talked a bit about what liberalism is, started touching on why it's important, uh, what we would lose if we didn't have liberal sensibilities uh, in, in our lives and in society. And But I also want to now focus on, as we start our second half here, more specifically on the threats to liberalism. Because I was kind of like, you know, teasing out in our towards the end of our, the first half there about like, you know, some say this, some say that, what about this? But I want to get a little more specific. And, and one of your essays really helps us do that. So in one of your essays, you do indeed identify some forces and then how to counter them uh, that go against liberalism and things we should be concerned of. You identify tribalism, scientism, and then forgetting, which I thought was pretty interesting. So um, let's let's talk first about tribalism, because I, I, I wanted to kind of explore your, your general thought on to why you just say tribalism is sort of a threat to all the great things we, we just talked about. So what do you mean by that? From what angle? Yeah, so, so uh, if we think about um, the default that says um, we need to circle the wagons, protect our own, that there is a them out there that is an existential threat to us. Um, and, and our attitude has to be one of vanquishing the other. Uh, that's what I mean by like the bad tribalism. And there's a political tribalism that we can point to. There's, um, there's an, uh, you know, a kind of ethno-nationalist version of tribalism we can point to. But more generically, it's that there is a hostile, uh, we have an us um, that uh, needs protection and, and we will use the levers of power to do that. Um, that and that there is a them that we are rightfully anxious uh, toward and are they're hostile to us and they must be, and they are our enemy. So that's the version of tribalism that I think is, um, um, it opens up our worst illiberal sensibilities or illiberal tendencies um, is if we buy into that form of, of tribalism. And would you say that, like, of course, ultimately, ideas are carried by people. But my question sort of is, would you say that tribalism and those sort of sensibilities and, and reactions kind of extend to ideas as well, even though, like I said, people care ideas. So for example, you know, you hear a lot today that, you know, there's a lot of reactionary folks that are really like, freaking out at everything they think is bad frankly from what i've seen you know like they're calling everything marxism for example so like you know and they're not really saying those six marxists over there they're talking about marxism taking over culture for example now again regardless of there's legitimacy to that or specifically what's happening in marxism and actually having a discussion about marxism i all i'm really trying to ask is that do you think that it's it's fair to say that tribalism extends not just to like you know pointing specifically at a group but also an idea that people fear some sort of cultural shift as well yeah, I, I think that's right. I think it does get personified, though, right? right. I mean, I think it's it, because people are the carriers of ideas. Um, and and frankly, I think that you're right to to kind of see this, um, that, that when people say those Marxists over there, um, it, it's, it, it's not because they understand necessarily Marxism, 
Um, and it's not necessarily that they've got very clear idea that these people who they've got in mind actually espouse the ideas of Karl Marx. Um, it's it's a sort of catch-all language about people I don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, and people I don't like who who kind of fall into a a, a, a category of something. And this is a, a pejorative term that I can use to kind of paint them with one broad brushstroke. And the same, the same thing goes on, you know, in, in, from the other side of the, the ideological spectrum too. So uh, there's no co- corner on the market of, of, you know, packaging people in, in unfair boxes here. Um, so I do think that there is a, um, that, that there is an ideas version of this, but I think it's also a very human thing. And I, and this is, you know, I talked about bad versions of tribalism um, that suggests that there might be a good version of tribalism. I actually do think that there is a good version of our groupishness. You know, I think our groupish tendencies are, are, uh, are hardwired. We wouldn't be here unless our ancestors had these tendencies. You know, as soon as you, you know, like, you know, when we think about like what gave us an advantage that allowed us to survive relative to other species, you know, we had no claws. We had, you know, we don't have sharp teeth. Uh, we don't have a protective hide. We are, you know, we just are, you know, very soft, um, uh, you know, morsels of food waiting to be, you know, chomped <laughs> by by the lion. Right? right. What allows us to survive is that uh, we had big brains and we had each other. And the big brains allow, you know, of, of Homo sapiens allowed us to develop language. And with language came culture. With culture came, um, uh, you know, sort of coordination uh, structures like hierarchies that allowed us to align our interests, to share tasks, to divide tasks, to uh, form teams. And as soon as you've got that kind of, and then we can like, and pass that on to the next generation who can then improve upon it even more, that, that enculturation is the differentiator, right? And that, and then, so the ability to say that person is like me and I can share um, some task with them. I can divide a task with them. I can coordinate with them and we can get something bigger done that it, is impossible for me to do alone, whether it's protection or acquisition of other mm-hmm. resources, that groupish tendency is still very much with us. So the way I think about liberalism is that it taps that good side of, of our groupish tendencies, that ability to coordinate, not just in the small band, but across society you know, into the, what Hayek called the the extended order. We cooperate with people far flung across the globe that we've never even met before. Well, what allows us to do that? It's abstract thought. So we can think in terms of coordinating mechanisms like price, price signals, you know, we can, we can understand what that means because of that, that big brain, but also like what allows us to get markets to uh, get goods to market. It's through that elaborate system of, um, forming groups, finding ways to cooperate with with one another, not through the bludgeon, but through and not through power, um, but because we are offer we are offering uh, something that improves the other person's um, uh, position, right? And that mm. and that mutuality is a, a part of our groupish tendencies as well. So liberalism taps the the good sides of. Um, 
of our groupish tendencies. And it even allows for wide scope of, of um, a, something like a tribal band. We call them families or we call them small communities um, or, uh, you know, or a, 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 a religious group of some kind. There can be that warm feeling of an us without that hostile anxiety and fear of a them that must be vanquished. To me, it's like that is the most miraculous thing that liberalism does is it turns that impulse to combat, join forces and combat the enemy into a, a, a not just merely benign force, but one that is turned on its head into be creating new opportunities for pre- peace and prosperity because we've got these um, uh, these liberal principles involved. So it's like this mm-hmm. this is this is an, the astonishing thing about liberalism. Mm-hmm. And it's something to practice as far as a worldview and a sensibilities you're saying too. I kind of like your metaphor of, of the garden that needs to be tended, right? This isn't something we yeah. just say, okay, we got liberalism. The sort of core liberal values and the way you're describing it is something that is, is something we need to practice through so you know social interaction or whatever else. So I, I really appreciate that point as well. Yeah. I'm going to shift our gear to another force that you say threatens liberalism or certainly cause some trouble to it. Scientism. So, 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 what do you mean by this one? So, scientism is this idea that to bring order in the world, we've got to engineer it. You know, we've got to have a bright mind coming to the problem, coming to the task, um, or the coordination challenge, and solving it like they would solve an engineering problem. Um, don't get me wrong. I think that, you know, engineering is, is, uh, also, uh, the benefits of engineering are, are part of the fruits of, of a liberal society because we, um, we've had that intellectual openness that allows us to exper- experiment and, and discover. Um, but we go awry when we think that all the good that, um, we can point to in the social order is by virtue of some active mind behind it. Um, And so by that way of thinking about order, that sort of um, scientistic um, thinking about order is um, what's behind a a kind of impulse toward authoritarianism when we face a wicked problem. You know, so we've got a very difficult challenge, whether it's a um, climate change or whether it's poverty alleviation or a global pandemic, these are big problems that we need um, we need to find solutions to. Um, but there's oftentimes an assumption that you can't leave it to the decentralized forces of human discovery um, and collaboration, cooperation to find the solution. Instead, you've got to impose an order from the top down, identify that solution at the top, and then, you know, then orchestrate and, and, and push the players on the chessboard around so that they're aligning to um, the master's um, design. And this is a, um, uh, and I'm not saying that there aren't some challenges where we might benefit from, you know, I think it's an open question. We should always be open to the question, um, you know, is there in this case a kind of a collective action problem that just cannot be solved from the bottom up? You know, I'm open to being persuaded on any of these wicked problems, mm-hmm. but 
um, uh, when we default there and assume that every aspect of the problem, for example, needs to be engineered, the solution needs to be engineered from the top down, we leave so much value on the table and we oftentimes run afoul of our own interests. We, you know, we actually subvert our own interests by assuming that, you know, that the solution can never kind of rise up and in a bottom-up sort of fashion. Mm -hmm. So that scientism is just assuming that all problems can be, a solution can be rationally engineered so long as you have enough power at the top to um, move the levers of society so that you get the outcomes that that are desired by the engineer. Mm-hmm. And and to add to that, if I may too, there of course is Please. sort of a uh, a distinction between, for example, like a small community getting together and saying, hey, we should probably cooperate on this problem, draw out a plan from the quote top down, if you will, and everyone get together and work on it because we can't just do it individually. That, that is one thing. Then on the other hand, the federal government, you know, with bureaucrats or whatever else in a different city saying, okay, everyone in the country is doing this, for example. So you know, that's sort of like the end of scientism, I guess, is the ultimate sort of centralized bureaucracy. Not necessarily, as you said, that people would cooperate and come up with a plan and execute it. That's a whole different thing, right? Yeah, no, that's great. And I don't know if you're familiar with um, you know, Eleanor Ostrom's work, mm-hmm. which I'm a big fan of and um, from the Bloomington School and the workshop that she and Vincent Ostrom uh, ran for so many years, really focusing in on governance challenges and looking at, at, at taking seriously the solutions that local communities would um, arrive at um, w- through uh, voluntary cooperative behavior, um, oftentimes very much at the local level. Um, but but then to your point, it, it's that that there that the, it's sort of like a a, a nesting doll sort of um, imagery might be helpful. Whereas some problems can be solved really, really well at the most local level. And then other problems needed a a next tier up. So it might be a collection of small communities before you could really um, uh, take a reasonable whack at a a particular problem because there might be some, you know, it, it doesn't work if only one tiny community does it, but if all 10 within a region, you know, kind of uh, uh, collaborate on a solution, then it, then it can work. And then it might, and there might be some things that are handled much better at a, you know, or at a sort of much more broader regional level. And so that she called that, they called, uh, the Ostrom's called this polycentrism in governance. The principle of polycentricity in um, governance is to recognize that what you need to find is the right scale of, of where, you know, of different problems require a different level of um, of collaboration and coordination, and it might be at a higher level or it might be at a lower level, but where we go wrong is when, say, a higher level, a state or regional or national um, uh, plan overrides the all of the bottom-up decision-making that's happening at, say, the community level. Um, that, you know, what what people learn is that we should we shouldn't even flex our muscles to try and solve problems at the local level anymore because they always get overturned at the upper at, at the say state or national level. Right. So right. you can kind of systemically undermine um, bottom up governance when you have governments acting at the wrong level mm-hmm. of operation. Mm-hmm. That makes total sense. 
and I am going to have to move us on to as well, just in the interest of time, although I, I, I love that topic, but we're going to, there's a lot where we're going to go past that I'd like to spend more time on, but, but hence uh, sort of our tour today rather than a eight hour seminar. But um, another force sort of, uh, you say liberals have to watch out for and something that goes against liberalism is, is what I sort of summarize in my note here is just forgetting. But in, in your essay, you talk about the problem of forgetting. So, so what do you mean here? Yeah, I, um, I really appreciate um, you coming back to that point. You hinted at it earlier when you talked about the need to tend the garden, right? That there's that it's not something that you can just say, hey, we have liberalism and now let it go, right? Um, uh, I think that there is a strong impulse for snapping back to our authoritarian um, impulses. Um, there's a snapping back to... Uh, a closed mentality rather than an, um, a maintaining an openness in the face of, of disruption, in the face of challenge, um, even in the, in the face of, you know, quote unquote victory, if that's the right word, I don't know, uh, uh, probably not. Um, but like, you know, in the post 1989 moment, right, it looked, you know, we had the fall of the Berlin wall. It looked like, you know, um, uh, you know, you know, state communism was in retreat it was um, it was just clear on its face that this was the Soviet um, uh, project was a failed project. It was and and there was this you know uh, championing of openness. You know even um, you know left of center liberals recognized the the value of of markets. You know we could disagree um, across the liberal spectrum about what the right degree of regulation was, but you know no one seriously was saying oh let's eliminate markets. Any you know no one anymore was you know, seriously advancing that anymore. So it looked like market-based liberal democratic societies had just won the so-called battle of ideas. And so like, what do you do when you win? You, you, you know, you, you like, okay, you declare victory and you move on and, um, you know, public policymakers, um, uh, uh, public intellectuals, scholars kind of said that that project doesn't need my attention anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and I think in the wake of um, uh, the post uh, Soviet era, we sort of lost the, we lost the habit of defending liberalism because it was like the ground beneath our feet. You know, like I get up in the morning, I don't think, is the ground beneath my feet going to catch me today? You know, right. is it going to, is it still there? No, I would like be, you know, stultified into inaction if I had to think that through every day. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think we treated liberalism in that way where it's like, this is the common ground we all agree on. Right. So like, we don't need to talk about that. Now let's talk about the weird places where we do disagree. Um, like what is the right level of regulation, et cetera. And there is not the, to suggest that these were not important questions, but we were always assuming that our interlocutors mm-hmm. were our fellow liberals. Um, so much so that we forgot to even recognize our fellow liberals after a while. Right. And right. Um, and so uh, that's what I mean by the profound forgetting that we've had. And so, you know, one of the things that um, uh, the Institute for Humane Studies uh, works on is gathering scholars and public intellectuals around this this common ground of uh, the liberal project. Uh, we may disagree a lot with each other about you know how to get culture you know the 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 balance of cultural liberalism right or the balance of economic liberalism right etc. But we do need to sometimes like take a breath and say and stop arguing just long enough to to look to our you know around us and say 
oh, but you're a liberal, right? You you are a defender of the liberal project, right? And, uh, oh, well, yes, I didn't think that I needed to say that. But yeah, in fact, I do need to say that because increasingly, as to your earlier point about the threats to liberalism, is that increasingly that common ground of liberalism is no longer assumed mm-hmm. that it's 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 crumbling beneath our feet in fact and i and and so calling scholarly attention back to the liberal project in part is about um identifying the common ground and fortifying it too um and and again that doesn't mean that i'm in a game of a purity test here like right. i am alex unless you are, you know, 100% full bore on all four corners of the liberal project. I don't want you part of the club, the liberal. That's ridiculous. You know, you might occupy more of a left of center cultural liberal um, space. Someone else might occupy more of a right of center economic liberal space, part of the space. Your fellow liberals, though, Okay, you might be a left of center liberal, you might be a classical liberal, you might be a Madisonian conservative, but you're all liberals, right? And so like naming that fact is important because they're, you know, the um, you know, the hounds are at the gate, right? Um, of genuine illiberals, right? right? People are genuinely championing concepts of illiberal democracy as if that's a good thing right right and, and i think that's, that's a, scary the, yeah oh, absolutely it absolutely is scary and i think that is, is a direct result and with various indirect tentacles about what you just said with a sort of moment of victorious hubris if you will where even for the last uh, 10 to 15 years of my life even i've observed a lot of folks basically when e-liberalism is talked about and i always use it as an example because it's true like people talk about like white nationalism or fascism you know it seemed that people had convinced themselves that like no matter what the actual fact outside the window was it's oh well that's always going to be like a two percent fringe view for example yeah. and then now we're realizing that, that that's not the case and anybody that you know would identify with any degree of liberal values at this time now in, in 2022 I, at least i hope mostly knows that it's not something we could just say well that's two percent or one percent of the people that yeah. actually believe this kind of stuff so i absolutely yeah. agree with that point yeah and if i can say this might pull us pull, uh, full circle um back to where we started about um the question of you know should liberals and engage and and you know take seriously the ideas of fascism um kind of thing you know this goes back to my graduate student days i was a a, a student of don lavoy's and one of the courses he taught was comparative economic systems and it was um you know ultimately an understanding of how what are the different ways that human society coordinates itself and he took very seriously um the study of fascism um because unless you understand that there is a system of thought behind it Mm -hmm. you won't understand the threat that it represents and it was and and one of the things that was so impressed upon me is that he said, of course, what we know about it, most people know about it is that um, is the anti-Semitism and the results of fascism, um, all of which should be taken seriously. But fascism as a coherent body of thought is a critique of liberalism. Right. And if you don't understand fascism, you do not really understand liberalism either. Right. Because it's it's like you start to see in relief what it is that we're wanting to um, advance and to and to shore up. And when we say that we want to fortify the liberal project, 
that isn't just fluffiness, right? It's about opposition to fascism. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and I, and I say that very cautiously because whenever some people, you know, whenever, whenever anyone doesn't like something, they call it fascism. And I, and I don't want to be guilty of, of that. So I'm being very, very deliberate here to say that the, illiberal the the most illiberal versions of the threats that we face are very much in line with a fasc, a form of fascism mm-hmm. and understanding that and understanding that it is really the exercise of the power principle across all facets of life that's what fascism is right. in a nutshell mm-hmm. right it's it's the exercise of power in the economic sphere it's the exercise of power in the political sphere in the cultural sphere and the intellectual sphere. That's what fascism is. So if you don't like that, right? If you're kind of opposed to that, good. That's a good thing. That's a great starting point. Right. And it means that you might be a real liberal, right? If it in and so I want to portray liberalism in its most positive light uh for sure, which is that it's the system that allows us to tap human potential. It's the system that leads to peace and cooperation and and widely shared prosperity. But we can also paint the picture for liberalism in the other direction that says, if you don't like fascism, you should really take liberalism seriously. Right. No, absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, because, you know, we've been a a lot of our discussion today has been about what liberalism is seriously in a non-cartoon way, which is great. But but exactly as you said, in order to actually be opposed to something, you need to understand it seriously. Or in other words, you need to be a serious opponent of fascism, for example, not just a, you know, flippant opponent of, you know, the cartoon version of whatever is presented in media and Nazis or whatever. Like, I, I totally agree with this point. I don't think it can be overstated, actually, that you actually have to know pretty well what you're against. Otherwise, you don't really know exactly what you're for either. Like it's kind of like a the cycle that sort of complements itself, right? For sure. And and on that note, actually, and our time is winding down here. I'm going to ask you one more question, then we're going to head to our formal wrap up because I, I know this is points very important to you, and I didn't want to leave uh, without touching on it at least. So, in one of your papers, you note that the university as an institution is a crucial element of a liberal society and shouldn't really be looked at in any other way. And and that's sort of a, a point I'm really interested in. So like, you know, basically the idea being that university is supposed to encapsulate most, if not everything we just talked about in this conversation today and people at universities and, and people thinking of what a university is shouldn't shy away from the fact that, you know, the at least in your mind, the idea is, no, this is the way universities should be looked at. It's part of the liberal project. So can can you give us sort of a, a summary of, of your thoughts on this and, and why why you think about that? Because, you know, you're not really, and I want to say again at the top that you're not really saying, well, of course, you know, universities are, are kind of liberal, or of course there's room for the university in the liberal project. You're not saying that. You're saying, no, universities are part and parcel of the liberal project. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The way I would, I, I, the way I like to talk about it is that um, the university, uh, at its best, is a cornerstone of a free society. It's a cornerstone of a liberal democracy. And I would say, uh, in the piece that you just mentioned, you know, my co-author Brad Jackson and I uh, talk about the question. You know, what is it that um, higher education owes to the liberal project? And the way that we characterize it is to say that um, universities are caretakers 
of the liberal project. They're caretakers of the free society. Um, the most important thing that must be like springing to people's mind is like, well, does that mean that um, uh, you would you would not you would not want universities to entertain um, points of view that differed or were challenging to liberalism? Not at all. That's not at all, anything like what I'm saying. In fact, liberalism is unique in um, sort of philosophical um, uh, 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 or, or I would say in a, in a sort of like um, um, philosophical liberalism as a system of of, of thinking through governance and um, and uh, an ideological perspective to the extent that it is is that it in, it's the only one that I know of that actively invites its own challengers. Right. You know, so Marxism, for example, is an ideological point of view. It's a political, you know, it's a it's a um, it has a worldview. It's a political um, system, um, but it doesn't invite its own challenge. In fact, it shuts it down. Right. Same with fascism. Liberalism is the is, you know, uh, unique in this respect. And so universities being a part of the liberal project, a cornerstone of the liberal project, need to be spaces where um, a challenge is invited. That being said, the, the university itself, you know, any individual scholar or intellectual movement can can find a place within the liberal university. But universities themselves, right, as institutions, have a stake in the success of the liberal project. Because if we are not operating in a liberal context, if we are shut down by the state, for example, um, uh, you know, think of Viktor Orban in uh, Hungary as, as a great example of this. You know, his illiberal democracy, the first thing that he has an interest in doing is shutting down intellectual debate. So in a very real way, the university, as we understand it, disappears, even if it still functions as mm-hmm. some sort of organization. Mm-hmm. It doesn't function as a as a true university. Right. So the university has as an institution, even though it invites critique of liberalism, it has a stake in the success of the liberal project more broadly because its own existence depends upon it. So these two things are existential. Like, you know, so goes one, you know, the direction of one, so goes the other. Um, And this is why I I would say that universities have a caretaker responsibility um, for representing um, liberal uh, intellectual principles and being true to them. And those Enlightenment era principles of intellectual openness, for example, are so important, not just because, um, uh, you know, we need sort of, and, and not and not because we need like equal time for, you know, different points of view to be aired. Um, you know, it's, it's much deeper than that. It's, it's that we undermine a, a core of a free society if we don't have institutions like universities defending the um, that spirit of intellectual openness, so those are those are some of the reasons why I would say that uh, universities owe uh, something incredibly important to the liberal project, and it's to be their it's to be a sort of caretaker, um, particularly of intellectual liberalism of of its openness, but also to make sure that liberal principles and concerns are at the table when discussing and sorting through the most pressing social challenges that are defining the present century. Mm-hmm. 
in, in other words, it's, it seems it's fair to say that in your mind, if you strip away, if you will, the liberal sensibilities and part of that liberal project from university, I mean, you might have a building where some vocational training happens and job training happens, but, and, you know, people are trying to get a, a degree in, you know, computer engineering or something like that, but, but not, not a university in, in the sense you're talking about, that it ceased to That's be right. the essence of that. Yeah. And by the way, even their computer instruction will not be very good after some period of time because there won't be enough intellectual openness to make sure that it continues to progress. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I'm not trying to bash science by any yeah. means in that way or engineering because, you know, if it is supposed to be based on scientific principles, I mean, that's another dot we can connect over to like the sort sure. of liberal sensibility, right? Exactly. That's right. Well, we are certainly at the end of our time here, uh, Emily, and I know I don't want to fill too much more of it because, uh, you know, you, you do have to go in and, and, and I've, I've used more than the time we talked about. So I, I want to bring us to the, the formal wrap up here. As you know, you said you listen to the show every uh, episode. I want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the last word, bring everything full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. So let me ask you the official last wrap up question here. What do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on, on what liberalism is and really why we should work to advance it? In other words, if you wanted someone listening to us here to leave with just one, two or a few takeaways, if anything, what would you want to leave them with? Yeah, so the, the big takeaway is that if if even, you know, sort of like, like 51% of what I've just said, you know, kind of resonates with you, you're probably a liberal, right? I and that and 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 you're invited to the party. <laughs> you know, that that's that that's the thing that the most important thing to take away is that the liberal project for it to succeed. Um, we really need to not be um, exercising sort of purity tests here. If 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 there is a lot that you've agreed with here, um, you're very likely a liberal. If there's some stuff that you're like, I don't know about that, or she didn't talk about that, and or what about this challenge? Or I'm really frustrated by how incomplete the liberal project is, or slow going um, uh, progress is with respect to really achieving the ideals of the of of the liberal society. Um, I'm with you, you know, actually, um, I'm frustrated by it too. So let's talk about it, right? Like let's, let's, um, let's lean into what our, the tensions are and the most pressing challenges are that are facing a free society, a liberal society today, because we need the brightest minds focusing on that version of the question. And, uh, and that requires that we get outside of our ideological and disciplinary bubbles. It requires that we lean into the spaces where we don't feel as comfortable, like we know what all the answers are. Um, and so inviting the world of um, intellectual challenge is a key part of what, um, you know, IHS is about. It's a key part of what um, you know, my career has been about, um, you asked, you know, why work for liberalism? Um, that's been a big piece of it is, is because the answer, you know, is because we haven't fulfilled the full promise of the liberal project and we need more minds working on it. So that's, that's one piece. Um, the stakes are incredibly high. If we don't get this right, um, I'm just looking at, at, you know, recent years, um, that um, there was a reason why we were forgetting, and that's that things were looking really good for a while. And guess what, right? They're not looking so great. The health of the liberal project is in jeopardy, and we need the best minds to do that. The very last thing I'll say, though, is that um, it's 
it's not always all about responding to the threats. There is deep joy in this work. There's deep joy in these conversations. And it might be everything for from um, you being a scholar and committing your whole intellectual career behind some theme within the liberal project. It might be that you're someone just um, listening to this and saying, oh, I want to have a conversation with my kids at dinner about that, about something along these lines. I want to bring it, bring it there. Or uh, we're wrestling with this um, challenge at, um, in the workplace, Let, but let's see it through this lens and, and let's have fun with it, right? That, there's tremendous joy in grappling seriously with serious ideas that, are, that underlie the good society. That, that society where human potential is tapped, there's tremendous joy in that work. Uh, whether it's work we're doing as just members of civil society or um, the core of our profession. And that joy is the source of uh, the, the longstanding, um, you know, energy within our community, within the intellectual community that um, that ILS is part of, that um, the Curious Task is a part of, that IHS is a part of. Um, there's tremendous joy in this discovery and openness, um, exploring uh, how best to achieve the um, the true promise of the liberal project. So I invite anybody who's excited about that from anything they've heard to, to join us. I think that's a place, a good place to leave it. So we're going to do that. Emily Chamley Wright, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you, Alex. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segang. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.